Take your Bible and turn to Psalm 14. This is a call of salvation from evildoers. Psalm 14. While you're turning there, I just want to make mention of something important. Today we'll do something a little different. Um, after our meal, I ask that you would stay around, unless it's raining. If it's pouring down rain, we'll have to reschedule this. But we, have as a, a provi- we are providing for the community invitations, personal invitations to come be a part of our Backyard Bible Club this summer, which we're having. Our children, people ask, when will you have VBS for our children? We're not having VBS for the children of this church. We're having VBS, Backyard Bible Club, for the children of this community. And so we're going to go invite them. And what we did is we put together a door hanger that on one side invites them to come be a part of the Backyard Bible Club on June 1st and July 20th and August 10th. And then we also, on the back side of the door hanger, invited them to our church and told them all about who we are here at Grace Fellowship. And so we need enough manpower and woman power and child power to get those on, in the hands or on the doors of every resident on the fort. And if we work together, that should take less than an hour, okay, of your time. And it can be really meaningful. As Dave said, we've been praying all week and the weeks prior to this week that as you knock on a door and hand out an invitation, God would open hearts of people to ask questions about Him. To say, why are you doing this? Who are you, alien people? Okay? Dave started to send an email out. I had to slow him back. He started to send an email out to tell you not to wear white shirts, black pants. Or ride bikes today. I look out across and I don't see many white shirts. If you have a white shirt on, please feel free to come. No bicycles there. It is a shame, though, that uh, in our world, when you talk about door to door, that's that's what you get. Is are you Mormon? Um, but but we are not Mormon, and we are going door to door today. And so come be a part of that with us. That's after we fill your belly with food so you're not going to be hungry. All right? Psalm 14. This is a psalm of David. I know there have been some who have disputed and asked questions about that. Some have dated this post-exilic psalm. Some have said it's pre-exilic during uh, the time of Jeremiah, maybe Isaiah. Um, and, and all these debates have raged in academia. I just take the Bible, again, at its word, this notice there's a heading at the first of the psalm. This heading is not, and I repeat, it is not like the dark, bold-faced headings at the first of different passages. I want to call your attention. Like, above our psalm, it says, the fool says there is no God. You see that? If you got an ESV like I do, it's in bold black. That's not inspired. That is inserted by the editors of this uh, particular version, translation, okay? But under that, you should see in, sm- in smaller letters, typeset differently than the rest of the passage, in all caps, to the choir master of David. That is a title that came to us from the Hebrew, okay? And I take those titles to be part of the Word of God. Whenever I see those in my Bible, I take them for what they are. So, Academics much smarter than me can debate all of this. I just simply believe this is the words written to us from King David. Okay? Not in the, in the post-exile or the pre-exile, but in David's time. Alright? And let's look at these words of David. There's a reason why they do that. Because verses 4 through 6 are prophetic. 
They look forward to something. And that causes a little stir among people who struggle with prophecy. But I don't have a problem with prophecy. Matter of fact, the Bible in the New Testament calls David a prophet. So I think those are prophetic statements in 4 through 6. I don't think they have to be dated in the future to make them real. David wrote them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 1. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand. If there are any who act wisely is another way you can interpret that, translate that. Who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people... Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This idea that God is inactive in our world is nothing new. We swim in a world filled with an ocean of humanism and secularism, but don't make a mistake of believing that's something unique to our day. That's been going on since just after the Garden of Eden. And it's not only that there's this secularism, but in our world, people still like to keep the outward appearance of religiosity. Right? Our culture is one that doesn't outwardly say there is no God. We say it inwardly. We like outwardly to put up a front so everybody thinks we're good religious people. We buy Bibles by the thousands and we lay them on our coffee tables with the other pictorial descriptions of world places we would like to travel as coffee pieces to talk about. We buy Bibles and put them on shelves in our libraries. We put them in the back windows of our cars and we plaster stickers on our bumpers that take God's Word out of context or twist it for our political purposes. We are a people that are humanistic and secular but we like to look on the outside like people of religious purpose. This is nothing new. If you look back through history, what you're struck with is not that people are non-religious, but that everyone is religious. The exceptions to the rule are atheists. There are very few atheists. And we have proof of that in the Bible. You can scour the text of the Bible. There is little said about atheists. Very little. Almost nothing. Even a text like ours that seems to look like the chant of an atheist, I hope you leave here today convinced it's not the chant of the atheist. It's the chant of the religious. Of people who are taking their refuge in something other than the true God. I would say in David's day there were no atheists. No culture that surrounded Israel did not believe in gods. They believed in many, 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 many gods. 
If you go through world history, there are very few cultures, if any, that deny the existence of God. There have been world governments who have tried to foist that on their people, but even they have failed. Our passage strikes at the heart not of atheism, but of practical atheism, like Psalm 10. What you will find in the Bible is not the outright denial in the heart level of God, but rather the religious, secularist who wants to pretend there's a God on the outside and worship the gods of his own making, but not bow the knee to the one and only true God. This psalm's fitting for our consideration because so many of us are living this convoluted existence. We come to a place of worship and we sing all the songs and we say all the confessions and we feel warm and fuzzy. Or if you come to Grace Fellowship enough, you feel really bad about yourself when you leave. Right? But, but that's what we do. And then we leave and the next time you think about God will be Saturday night about 10.30. And you think, oh, i got to go to bed because i got to be happy tomorrow when I go to church. This is a good psalm for us because it calls us not to play that game. And it says the Lord's eyes see that game. He sees it for what it really is. One of my favorite uh, questions and, and I agree with the, the one who asked it. That one, the most important thing you, that, that matters, the most important thing in your life is what you think. What comes into your mind when you think about God. I agree with that, but I, I want to go one step further. I think he would have gone one step further. My question is, do any of you and does our world really ever think about God? Ever. What I see in our lives is a lot of practical denial that there is a God. A lot of self-help theology that believes if I work hard enough and I do good enough, life will be on my side. And if I'm lazy and I'm out of hand, then I'll pay the price. But it's all about human action. Very little really about God. If you turn on the TV... It's possible to watch for days on end without any real mention of God. Not just in sitcoms or movies, which are pretend, but on news stations. No mention of God. It's as if He doesn't exist. Until a tragedy strikes, and then everybody all of a sudden wants to say, we're a Christian nation. We need Psalm 14. Because Psalm 14 is a psalm that speaks directly to people like you and like me and like the people of this nation. So we're going to look at it. It's in four sections. It's in, it's in a style. Verse 1 and verse 7 are parallel verses. A-A. And in the middle you have the B sections. Okay, And that's verses 2 and 3 and then 4 through 6. So the outline of the passage looks like this. First verse, evildoers deny the existence of God by life and thought and speech. They deny God at every level, in every way. Now, now where do I get the term evildoer? The Bible says the fool. That's not like our English word fool, ignorant. That's evildoer. Wicked. The one who does wicked. The one who does foolishly. 
The fool or the evildoer says in his own heart. Notice it's an internal thing. He's not talking to anybody outside. He keeps up the charade that he believes in God. If you had stopped the fool in David's day and if you stopped the evildoer in our day and asked him, especially in our culture in the south in Cone County, and you just stopped an evildoer in the middle of his evil actions, you could catch him by the hair when he's doing something totally ungodly and say, do you believe in God? And he would calm down and say, yeah, I believe in God. Back to my evil. That's the fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. How does he say that? Very specifically. Look at the passage. He is corrupt. That means he's ruinous. Everything about his life is rotten and decrepit and falling apart and moving to disorder. They are corrupt. They are abominable in their deeds. Vile in their deeds. They are rebellious against God as king and as lawgiver. They're not only ruinous in their heart, but they actually act out their law-breaking. And thirdly, they don't ever do good. There's a complete lack of real righteousness. I said earlier that, that there was no one in David's day, I don't think, that would have said bold-facedly, I'm an atheist. I don't believe there's a God. And actually in their heart believed that. Actually believed it. There's proof to that. Even those who die claiming their whole lives to be atheists before they die, they typically, on the deathbed, they're still fighting against this God they say doesn't exist. Even Christopher Hitchens, one of the most intelligent men of our day by the world standards, if there was, I just, if I could have just had five minutes with him, my question would have been simple. Why do you keep fighting something that doesn't exist? You spent your whole adult life writing articles, books, and doing conferences about a God you say doesn't exist. Why didn't you just stop and go live your life? Why does it bother you that other people believe in a God? Really, if there is no God. You see, because I believe the Bible when it says that in the heart of every man God has written the truth that there is a God. I believe that. And David believed that. These are not atheists. These are people who are foolish in their evil doing. And they rebel in their ruinous, rebellious, total unrighteous living. Their law-breaking ways. And it's not just the outside world, though I think that is in mind when David writes this. He's thinking about the pagan cultures which we see spring up in Genesis. If you take your Bible and turn back to Genesis chapter 6, who are these ruinous, rebellious people? Well, in Genesis chapter 6, God says, in verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. The foolishness of man, we could say, was great in the earth. And that, they, that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. That's our person in verse 1. That's who it is. And the Bible says in Genesis 6 that that had spread over the whole face of the earth. The pagan cultures sprang up and God destroyed them in the flood. But by Genesis 11, they're back again. All of the pagan nations are in the table of nations. And they all are living in this foolish way, denying there is a God by their very existence. 
by their very practice. But it's not just pagan people that David talks about. It's the religious people of his day. Those inside the covenant community in Israel. Take your Bible and turn to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 32. Just so we see that it's not just those outside in the Gentile pagan world, but it's also those inside the covenant community, the promised people. Isaiah 32 verses 4 through 7. The heart of the hasty will understand and know... And the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool, same guy we're talking about in Psalm 14, the evildoer, will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity. To practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. Who is it that Isaiah is speaking of, this fool? Well, it's those inside the covenant community. Israel had become foolish. We see in the time of Ezekiel that the very leaders of the religious practices of Israel were inside the walls of the temple carrying on in idolatry idolatry and prostitution inside God's house. That's why I just pause to say, don't think about pagans outside the church when you read Psalm 14. Think about the pagans in the church. Those of us who claim to be God's people who behave like the lost world in our practical everyday living. It's not enough, in other words, to dress up, come here, look good, talk a good game on a Sunday, talk a good game around Christian friends, but in the world to be absolutely devoid of an acknowledgement in your very actions of who God is. It's not enough. It doesn't trick God. And it didn't stop with Israel. Because I I, I don't want to sound like I'm anti-Israel, I'll just spread the love to the church. Revelation chapter 3, verse 15. The Lord Jesus, speaking through John, writes this to the church at Laodicea. I know, I understand, that many have taken this passage and applied it to the lost world. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will sup with him. That's not to the lost world. That's not to the pagan cultures. That's to the church at Laodicea. Jesus is speaking to His own people. Why? Because Psalm 14 wasn't written for pagans. Isaiah 32 wasn't written for pagans. Revelation 3, 15 through 21 wasn't written for pagans. It was written for people who claimed the name of Christ. Who claimed the name of God. Yahweh. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, in 17, we see the description of these people that are neither cold or hot, that are lukewarm, and it matches Psalm 10, which also is about practical atheism. It matches it. Look what it says in 17. You say, I'm rich. The practical atheist, remembering Psalm 10, was rich. And I tell you, you you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you to buy 
from me, gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may, that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Those I love, I reprove and discipline, and, I'm, and so be zealous to repent. I'm standing at the door knocking. If you hear me, open the door and I'll come in to you. And I'll sit down and eat with you and have communion with you. That's not a passage to the pagan. That's a passage to the church. It's a passage to me and a passage to you when so often in our lives we are living as if the Lord Jesus Christ, Yahweh, God of Israel, does not exist. On our jobs, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, with our friends and our family. And then we come to this place and we say, all's well. Everything's good. I wonder how often God is saying, Jesus Christ is saying, oh... You make my stomach churn. Secondly, in our passage, we see that Yahweh looks for the wise among the evil. He looks for the wise among the evil. Verses 2 through 3. The Lord looks down from heaven. He is the all-seeing God. He is omnipresent, omniscient, and He's looking from heaven. It's the same, same way that He was looking at Ishmael. In the desert. That's when he gained the name, the all-seeing one. You see me. That's what Ishmael's mother, Hagar, said. You see me. Right? And so, here it is again. He's looking from heaven at the children of men. Mankind, humankind, to see if there are any who act wisely. Among all these fools, is there anyone... Who is wise? Is there anyone who believes in me? Who seeks after me? God describes wisdom not as book smartness, but the book smartness. God could care less if a man gains all the degrees this world has to offer if he denies the book. And the one who the book is about, Christ, he is a fool. He's a fool. So here God is looking and seeing. Our covenant God is always looking for those who keep covenant with Him. He's always looking for those. In David's day, He was looking in the nation of Israel, and His eyes were all over the nations, but particularly on Israel, looking for someone who acted wisely, followed the law, believed in the promise of the Messiah. He was watching. He was looking among the fools, he's seeking those who know him. And don't take your Bible and turn there because we've been there once today. But Genesis 6-5, God was doing the same thing. In that passage in 6-5 that described the world before the flood, God was looking at the world. And you know what he saw? One man. His name was Noah. He was the righteous man of his generation. He was the only one acting wisely. In Genesis 11, verse 5, the Tower of Babel, the eyes of the Lord were on the earth 
seeing the paganness of the world around him. And he destroyed the people at Babel, and he scattered them across the earth, and he saw one man in Genesis 12. His name was Abram. He was the righteous man of his generation. He was the only one seeking God. He was seeking God based on the best knowledge he had, and God answered him. Under the trees, God answered him. Genesis 18, verse 21, Sodom and Gomorrah's wickedness went up before the Lord, and he came to destroy them. And it's interesting to me that Abraham knows the character of his God, doesn't he? When Yahweh comes to him, the messengers come to him, and they say, we're going to destroy the people in the valley. We're going to wipe them off the face of the earth for their wickedness. What does he do? He pleads with him for what? Will you spare them if I find faithful people? He knew the character of God. He knew that God's eyes were on the foolish looking for the wise. And he said, if I can find any wise people, will you spare them? And the truth is, what restrains what restrains the hand of God from destroying the world today are His people and His desire to save all of His people. Our God is patient, not willing that any should perish, that any of His people should perish, but that all should come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. What restrains the total destruction of this planet, of this world, is God's desire to be patient with His own people, to bring them from their foolish ways into wisdom. Yahweh is continually looking for people who are faithful to the covenant. His eyes are on the earth. But in our passage, we also see, once we move out of verse 2 into verse 3, that Yahweh sees nothing in this day of of David. He sees nothing but evil and rebellion. Look at verse 3. They have all, you notice, turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. They have all turned aside. They have become apostate. That's what that means. They have turned out of the way. They were on the road of covenant righteousness and they made the decision to go the other way. They became apostate. They have fallen. They have become corrupt. Again, ruinous in all of their ways. They are ruinous. They don't do good. They never keep the law. Has this condition ever really changed? I mean, when we stop and think about the world that we live in, has it, has it changed? Paul says no. If you take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 3, our passage is quoted in a long chain. There's several Psalms of David that, got, that Paul wraps up to describe the wickedness of mankind. Remember, Romans 1 is the detail that the pagan world knew there was a God and denied His existence and began to worship other gods after their own likeness. And they not only did that, but they rebelled against God at the very basic fabric of society, which is the marriage bed. That's what pagan culture did in Romans chapter 1. Began to act totally unrighteously in the area of sexual union. That's just the result of their paganism, by the way. That's just the result of their idolatry, of their foolishness. Then he moves on and says, it's not just the pagans. Paul moves on and says, it's Israel also. Israel has gone out of the way. Israel has sinned. Israel has broken the covenant. Israel has not stayed faithful. 
And he comes to Romans 3, verse 10, and say, or verse 9, he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That's our passage. That's Psalm 14. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, ruinous. No one does good. Not even one. So in Paul's day, this condition has not changed. It's the same as it was in David's day. The same as it was in Abraham's day. Men are unrighteous and ungodly and have gone out of their way to rebel against the living God. And they deny His existence, not by their outward act, not by their outward facade of living in a religious setting, but in their actions, in their deeds, and in their internal existence. The condition hasn't changed in our day. So many, even sitting in this room, if you just would just strip it all away and get re- just dead level honest, you don't live as if there is a God. You have turned out of the way. So Psalm 14 is needed today to call you to know that your God in heaven sees you. He sees your corrupt ways. He sees your lack of obedience. He sees it with His own eyes. He calls it for what it is. You're not fooling Him. He's not confused. So, we go to the next point. What we see in verses 4-6 through is David looking forward. He's looked back. He's seen the result of, of, of all these years of rebellion into his own day. And now he's looking forward. And he's trusting in Yahweh. He's trusting in Yahweh as his refuge. He's, he's saying, I know this world is despicable. I know that my own nation is rebellious. But I trust the Lord and I go to Him as my protection. As my fortress. First of all, in verse 4, we see that Yahweh loves His people. He shows great affection for His people. He says in verse 4, they know, they, Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up, what? My people. He expresses the most loving ownership over His people. They're My people. Even as rebellious as Israel is, Yahweh is faithful. These are my people. And the evildoers, both inside and out, they eat away the provision that I've given to my people. They eat away the bread, the sustenance that my people need. And they don't call on me as their Lord. He's not only calling them His people, but He then says that He is in the company of the righteous. God counts Himself with the righteous. In verse 5, it says, God is with the company, the generation of the righteous. God is there with them. So he's he's not distancing himself from his people. He's drawing near to his people. He's owning them as his people, even though they struggle in this life with rebellion against him. Secondly, we see in this section that Yahweh defends his people. The Lord is their refuge at the end of verse 6. 
He's their tower. He's their strong fortress. His name is sufficient to provide for them the satisfaction of protection they need when they're under attack. He's present with them. Yahweh defeats the evildoer. The, the, one, of the, one of the great hopes of the people of God has always been that God would protect them and consume those who are against them, who are evil. He says, The evildoers are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. What, what will happen? He will, he will come and He will consume them. He will wipe them away. He, the, the idea here is that He will flood them with His wrath, with His judgment. The Lord will overwhelm them suddenly and completely. He will sweep them. Again, David must be looking back and forward. He's looking back at the flood. He's looking forward to the eternal judgment. He sees them both. And he says, my hope is in the refuge God provides me from that judgment. That's my hope. So you're not one of the practical atheists in the room. You're one who is holding on to Christ in true faith. Keep holding on. Keep standing in His name. His protection will be the ark that carries you through the wrath of God in the day of judgment that's coming. He will provide protection. He will stand with you. He calls you His own and He stands with you in company with you. Finally, in verse 7, Yahweh says He will save His people, restore their fortune, and cause them to worship. In verse 7, we find the eschatological hope. Eschatological just simply means end-time hope of David and of all of God's people of all time. That the salvation that God will provide for Israel will come from the city of Jerusalem, will come from Zion. And the Lord will restore the fortune of His people. Though they are downtrodden in this world, they will be lifted high in that day. And they will be given back what they so long and deserve. And in that day they will rejoice. He says that Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. It's interesting that when we see this, both in the Psalms and in the prophets, when we see this combination of Jacob and Israel, do you see that? Jacob and Israel. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. God is doing something very intentional. I would say, I would say God is doing something very intentional. Jacob is not Israel. Jacob is an individual. From his loins comes Israel. But when God says Jacob will rejoice, this predates a nation. There's no nation in the day of Jacob. There's only a family. It's after Jacob and after the patriarchs that the nation is known to sing. So what David is saying is that God will keep His promise to all of His people. Those inside of national Israel and those outside, when it was just a family, God will keep that promise. God will keep the promise to all of His people. He saves them, Israel, from Zion. He comes from Zion and He restores to them the fortunes. This is what the prophet said over and over again, that they, God would restore to them the fortune due them. How will He do it? How will God act on behalf of His people? How will God keep this messianic promise? Well, he did, did he not? God promised 
from the earliest of time, when it was only Adam and Eve, that he would send forth one who would crush the head of the enemy. Oh, he will suffer. He will be punished. He will be stricken. He will be smitten. But he will survive, and he will crush the head of the evil one. This is a promise given to us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. From that promise to the promise to Noah, the promise to Abraham, the promise to David, God has promised a Messiah. And even in the psalm, we see the promises being lifted up. Verse 7 is David's hope. Salvation will come from Zion. God will restore our fortune to us. And He will make us rejoice and be glad. Do you see that? David's not experiencing that in his day. He's looking forward to that. Just like you're not, maybe not experiencing the joy, the fullness of the joy, but you're looking forward to the fullness of the joy. So how did God fulfill this to His people? He promised it from Genesis. How did He fulfill it? The Bible tells us that there was, in the city of David, a small couple who went into a cattle stall. And the one who was born there's name was Jesus. His name, which was given by God through the messenger angel Gabriel, was Yeshua. God saves. In that one moment, in that cattle stall, all of the promises from Genesis 3.15, Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17, 2 Samuel chapter 7, all of the promises came true that day. Because God stood in the company of the righteous. And in the day of judgment, He provided for them one who would not be swept away. He provided for them one who would fulfill all of His prophetic word and deliver the fortunes of the promise to His people. Jesus is not only called Jesus, but by Matthew in chapter 2, He is called the true Israel. See, God kept His word. Psalm, Psalm 14, look forward to God keeping His word. And I can tell you today, God has kept His word. If you're sitting here doubting the existence of God, let me tell you, God has kept His promises. He promised and He delivered. His Son has come. And in His Son, we have received the fullness of of the fortune which God has for us in Him. And it will be the only thing that stands in the day of judgment. That one, Jesus, and those who are with Him. So what does God say to us in the New Testament about this promise? How will we connect to this? How will we become children of God? By faith. And this is where the practical atheist struggles the most and the deepest. Because he can't see with his eyes anything to make him believe. Everything around him looks bleak, looks fallen, looks destroyed. So he says in his heart, there is no God. The difference between him and a believer is simply faith. The belief that Jesus is the promised one. That He is the salvation that would come from Zion. That He is the one who would bring to fruition all of the promises of the fortune that was good to Israel. And that if we believed in Him, we would inherit with Him as joint heirs all 
of the blessings of God. That's the difference. Faith. I can't make you have faith. You can't even muster it up within yourself. It's a gift from God. So, if you sit today doubting, unbelieving, I say, would you not call to Him? Would you not test Him and know that He is true and know that He is real? Would you not call to Him today and submit to Him in utter dependence that He make you believe? That He calls you to accept? That he open your eyes and unplug your ears and give life to your dead soul that you might believe. If you're in him today, stay there. Don't, don't doubt him. He will deliver. See, in the first coming of Christ, we received the inauguration of the fullness of the kingdom. And in his second coming, we will receive the fullness of the consummation. Last night, as I was standing at Sarah Haynes' reception. And I was just standing back on the lawn looking at the people. I thought about this sermon. I thought about the many sermons I've preached before and hopefully, by God's grace, the many I'll preach in the future. And I thought, God is so good to give us a visible picture of what He is doing. Because as I stood there, all of Sarah's friends and family and all of the groom's friends and family are there. And there's great rejoicing. There's singing. There's dancing. There's, there's, there's food and feasting. And I just looked around and thought, this, 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 is, just a, this is just a blip. This is just a taste of the fortunes He will deliver to us when, he's, when He comes again. My heart just, inside just, Welled up. And he is now, as I think, excitedly about him coming. Look, you say there is no God. I say there's not only a God, but I know him. And he's been good to me. And he's for me. And he's with me. And he not only says, grit your teeth. He, he doesn't say, grit your teeth and hold on and hope it's true. He says, I'm going to deliver the greatest bridal feast you have ever seen. I'm looking for it. Are you? I'm waiting in expectation for it. I'm longing for it. I told our kids we were walking in the car. Noah was walking beside me. I said, Noah, this fun night, was this fun tonight? He said, yeah, Dad, this was fun. I said, this doesn't hold a candle to what we'll do when he comes, son. The wedding feast of the Lamb will be so magnificent. It'll be so big. He said, we're going to really party like this day? I said, son, you don't have a clue. <laughs> you don't even know. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what's coming when he comes. Listen. I said, son. Every, he said, what are we going to do? Lily said, daddy, are we really going to do this? I said, listen, kids. We're going to work. We're going to worship. And we're going to party. That's the kingdom. Work, worship, and party. Celebrate, sing, worship, feast without end. So you say there's no God? I say I'm waiting on Him. And He's coming. And I'm going to celebrate with Him forever. Join us in the celebration. 
There's always an empty chair for you. He's invited you. Come, eat, drink, and be satisfied in Him.